Church, our reading this morning comes from John chapter 6. John 6 verse 1, where it says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. We continue reading at verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
This is the word of God. Thank you, Helen. Good morning, church. If you don't know me, my name is Adam and it's uh, wonderful to have you with us this morning as we continue our way through this sermon series that we kicked off a number of weeks ago called Reason to Believe, Seven Signs from the Gospel of John. See, we're looking at seven miracles that Jesus performed and what they tell us about Jesus. And I want to begin uh, this morning by asking you a very simple question. Have you ever been hungry? Now, I don't mean just hungry, I haven't had a snack in 30 minutes hungry. I mean like really, really hungry. Now, of course, we live in a, a place where we're blessed to have food in abundance and for most of us, we've never really experienced real hunger and real starvation. Most of us don't have to worry about where our next meal is coming from. But I'm sure we could all think about times in our lives when we've been hungry. I remember uh, a couple of years ago, I went to the United States in 2016 and I was there to attend the Organic Outreach Conference uh, in California. And so I flew into San Francisco and I flew in a a few days early to kind of check the city out because I'd heard it was a cool city and I wanted to, to see it. One of the things I was told that you must do in San Francisco is ride a bike across the Golden Gate Bridge. So I thought, well, that sounds pretty cool, I'm going to do that. But I thought if I'm going to hire a bike, I might as well make the most of it and see a little bit of San Francisco as well. And so I found a bike hire place and I said to the guy, I'd like to hire a bike and I'd like to see a little bit of San Francisco and go across the bridge and whatnot. So he pulled out a map and he showed me a route that, uh, that he thought I could take. But I was thinking inside, to me, you know, that route looked a little bit short, it looked a little bit easy. And so, yeah, you can already tell where this is going. So I said to him, well, what if I drive down, ride down through this park, across the waterfront, up through those hills, across the hills, down across the bridge, back through the city and back to the bike shop? And he said to me, he said, well, that's a long way and those hills are pretty steep. He said, I don't recommend you do that. Of course, I thought to myself, yeah, well, I'm pretty young, I'm relatively fit, how hard could it be? So it started beautifully, the ride through the park was magnificent, the the ride along the water was flat and, and lovely, and then I hit the first of the hills. Now, if you've been to San Francisco, you know that the hills over there are real hills. I spent the next three to four hours riding up and down these hills. I was on the side of main roads. I was in national parks. I was going, went through a golf course, residential estates, across the bridge and back, through the city, almost getting run over by trams and cars before I eventually, finally, made it back to the bike shop. It had been hours and I had not eaten since breakfast, and the sun is going down, I was exhausted. And so I returned the bike, I stumbled out of the bike shop, I had one thing on my mind, food. And so as I stumble out of the bike shop and, and walk down the road, I see this. I see this, oh, I've gone off the screen. This glorious sign. Now, if you don't know what that is, In-N-Out Burger is kind of a chain on the west coast of America, very popular. I went in there, I ordered the biggest burger I could find, inhaled it and washed it down with about 10 litres of Dr Pepper or something like that. 
Now I'm sure we can all remember times in our life when we have been hungry, when we felt the emptiness, the, the gnawing pain of hunger, and then the satisfaction and the relief when our hunger is satisfied. And the reason I tell you all of this is not to highlight my pride and my stupidity. The reason I tell you all this is because the Bible tells us that we don't just experience physical hunger, we also experience spiritual hunger. We all experience a longing, a desire, a hunger deep within our souls that only God can satisfy In this well-known story that we're looking at today in John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, it points us to the profound truth that Jesus alone can satisfy our spiritual hunger. Because Jesus alone is the one who gives us eternal life with God. Now I know that this can be a little bit difficult to wrap our minds around. I mean, physical hunger and physical thirst we get, but what is spiritual hunger? Why is it so important? How can I know if I'm spiritually hungry? And more important, what can I do about it? These are some important questions, whether you're a Christian here this morning or not. And we're going to wrestle with these questions this morning and we're going to see that Jesus alone is the one who satisfies our spiritual hunger. And so we're going to look at this story uh, under two simple headings. Firstly, our great hunger in verses 1 to 7 and then God's great provision in verses 8 to 15. So let's look first at our great hunger. Now as the story begins, we're told that Jesus is on the move again. He's going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, but he's not alone. In verse 2, we're told that there is a large crowd following Jesus. Now later in the story, we're told that there were 5,000 men which means if we take into account all of the women and the children that would have been present, there could have been upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people in this crowd. And the reason they're following Jesus is because they had witnessed Jesus perform miraculous healings. And so perhaps they're looking for Jesus to heal themselves or to heal their loved ones. Maybe they're just interested in seeing what Jesus will do next. Either way, they're not following Jesus because of who he is. They're simply interested in Jesus because of what he might do for them. And this is actually made especially clear later in the story when after Jesus miraculously feeds the crowd, they don't kind of humble themselves before him and obey him and listen to him. They try to make Jesus do what they want. They try to say, Jesus, would you use your power to kind of defeat the Romans and lead us into battle? They're trying to use Jesus for their own purposes. They've misunderstood Jesus. And this is why the crowd is following him. And again, it forces us to ask ourselves, well, why am I following Jesus? Is it because I want to love him and obey him and submit to him? Or is it simply because of what I want Jesus to do for me? Or what Jesus might be able to give to me? See, the truth is, Jesus does not exist for us, we exist for him. And the truth is, Jesus doesn't need us, but we desperately need him. Because he is the saviour, he is the son of God. But the crowd have misunderstood this. And so in this miracle, Jesus is going to make abundantly clear who he is. He's going to reveal the truth of his identity in this miracle. 
And the miracle begins with a question that Jesus asks one of his disciples. Jesus asks Philip, he says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? See, this huge crowd is gathered around Jesus. You can picture the scene. The sun is beginning to set. Dinner time is beginning to draw near. And we're told elsewhere that they were in a remote place. In other words, there was no woolies, there was no coals nearby. And even if there was, there wouldn't be enough food to even feed this massive crowd. This is an impossible situation. So why is Jesus asking Philip this question? Well, we're told there in verse 6 it was to test him. Jesus wants to test Philip's faith. He wants to test whether Philip will focus on the impossibility of the situation before him or whether Philip will recognise the power and the authority of the one who asks him the question. Now, Philip would have been well aware of Jesus' power and authority. He was one of Jesus' closest followers, closest disciples. He would have seen Jesus turn the water into wine, heal the royal official son with just his word. And like we saw last week, heal the paralysed man by the pool at Bethesda. Philip would have been aware of all of this. And so we would imagine that perhaps Philip would respond to Jesus' question by saying, well, Jesus, I know your word is powerful. I've seen it with my own eyes. Just say the word. Tell these stones to become bread and they will. But that's not what he says. Look how Philip replies. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. And so Philip reveals that he hasn't quite grasped or understood the reality of who Jesus is yet. He doesn't recognise Jesus' ability and power and authority. He's too focused on his own inability and insufficiency and weakness. And this scene before us, the hungry crowd, Philip's answer to Jesus' question about his inability to feed the hungry crowd, it paints for us a picture of a profound spiritual truth that has impact for you and I. In fact, we can see ourselves in both the hungry crowd and in Philip's answer. Like the crowd, we too are desperately hungry. But we're not in need of dinner, we're in need of something far deeper. We're in need of spiritual satisfaction. This is what Jesus means in verse 35 when he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, he doesn't mean that if we come to him, we won't need to eat or drink anymore. He's not talking about physical hunger or physical thirst. He's talking about a deeper hunger, another kind of hunger. He's talking about spiritual hunger. He's talking about those questions that we all want answered. Why am I here? Do I matter? Does my life matter? Am I loved? Can I have hope for the future? We all want answers to those questions. We all want to know that our lives have purpose and meaning, that we're loved, that we can have hope for the future. We all hunger for these things. Molly and I got to go and see a movie together for the first time since um, Knox was born last night. It was Molly's birthday and so we went out and we saw a movie called Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Now, it's a strange name, but it's a good movie. Basically, the movie is about this woman whose daughter is violently murdered, and it's about her search for justice for her daughter. 
And there's this scene in the movie where the mother is in the garden and she's gardening and a deer kind of wanders in from the nearby forest. And the mother begins to talk out loud to this deer and, and she begins to say to this deer, well, there still has been no arrest, no one has been arrested and held to justice for the murder of my daughter. And then she wonders out loud and she says, is it because there ain't no God, the whole world's empty and it doesn't matter what we do to each other? Then she says, I hope not. I hope not. See, we all hunger for meaning and purpose and justice and love and all these deep questions within us. And we can see a picture of our spiritual hunger in the physical hunger of the crowd. We can also see ourselves in Philip's answer to Jesus' question. See, in response to Jesus' question, Philip admits that he is unable to satisfy the hunger of this crowd. He does not have the resources to feed them. And like Philip, the truth is, we don't have the resources to satisfy our spiritual hunger. In and of ourselves, we are unable to satisfy our deepest longings. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we don't try. We desperately try in all different sorts of ways to find satisfaction for our souls. We turn to so many things, even good things, to try and satisfy, but they always fail to satisfy us. In fact, this is what Jesus said in verse 27. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Now notice there, Jesus says there is a kind of food that we try to use to satisfy ourselves, but it is food that perishes. It is food that spoils. Now, what is that? What is food that perishes? What is food that spoils? The simple answer is, it is anything other than God that we look to for ultimate meaning and ultimate satisfaction. See, there are lots of great things in this world, and they're gifts from God. Family and career and sex and beauty and talent and health and wealth. They're all good gifts from God, but they're not God. And when these things become our main source of food to satisfy our spiritual hunger, when they become our main source of meaning and hope and security and love, they perish. They spoil. They don't live up to their promise. They ultimately fail to satisfy us. And no one said this better than C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. Listen to what he writes. He says, Most people, if they really learned how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or trips or so on. I'm speaking of even the best possible ones. There is always something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent and it may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. Do you hear what he's saying? 
He's saying even when we have the best experiences and the best relationships and the best possessions that this world can offer, there is still something missing. There is still something that evades us. We think these things will satisfy us, but they fail to deliver. And we know this is true. In 1965, the Rolling Stones say, I just can't, I can't get no satisfaction. In 1987, you two saying, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And we know this is true. Jim Carrey, the actor and comedian, has said, I wish everyone could experience being rich and famous so they'd see it wasn't the answer to anything. So much of our lives are spent chasing food that we think will satisfy, but it perishes. And this isn't just a problem in Hollywood. This is just as much a problem in the suburbs of Brisbane. Let's be honest. We too buy into the lie that what we need to be happy is more of what we already have. If I could just get a bit more money, then I'll be happy. More sex, more free time. Or we think happiness awaits us in the next phase of life, in the next experience. When I'm dating someone, then I'll be happy. When I'm married, then I'll be happy. When I'm not married, then I'll be happy. (laughs) When I get a job or, or a new job, when I get a new car, when I can travel the world, we we do believe that we'll be satisfied and happy and content if we can just get more of this, if we can just go there, if we can just get that. And friends, it is a lie. It's a treadmill. It's a road to nowhere. It's food that perishes. Once you take hold of it, whatever it is, it crumbles in your hands. Let me just ask you, what is it for you? What do you think you need more of or or you need to get or you need to go to be happy, to be satisfied, to be content in life? Jesus says that if it's not him, it will ultimately fail to deliver. And the reason that these things fail to satisfy us, the reason that even the best experiences, the best possessions, the best relationships, the reason they fail to fully satisfy our souls is because they were not meant to. The gifts were given to us, not as a means to satisfy our souls, but to point us to the gift giver. Again, C.S. Lewis puts it so well in Mere Christianity. He says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger while there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim while there is such a thing as water. Men and women feel sexual desire while there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. See, the gifts of God... Family, sex, friendships, created things, they are like the aroma of freshly baked bread. It smells good and when you smell it, when you experience it, you're not meant to stand there sniffing the air because no amount of sniffing is going to satisfy your belly. 
You're meant to follow the aroma, follow the smell to the bread itself so you can eat and be satisfied. See, the gifts of God have been given to us to lead us to the gift giver. And the tragedy of the human condition is that we have taken, freely taken the gifts of God, gorged ourselves on the gifts, but have rejected the gift giver. And the result is not only have we distorted the gifts, but we've missed out on the greatest gift of all, which is God himself. It makes me think a little bit of this story, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Now I'm sure a lot of us have seen it, but in the story there's a group of children who find a golden ticket. And this golden ticket means that they're invited to visit this amazing chocolate factory that's run by Willy Wonka. But from the moment they enter into this factory, the children make fools of themselves. They ignore Willy Wonka, they repeatedly do what they're not supposed to do. Augustus Gloop drinks from the chocolate river and falls in and is sucked away. Violet Beauregard chews the chewing gum that she shouldn't and she turns into a a giant blueberry. Veruca Salt demands to have one of the geese that lay golden eggs, but she ends up on the scales and is thrown into the garbage chute as a bad egg. And so it just goes on and on and on. Some of the children even steal from Willy Wonka. Now these children were invited into the chocolate factory. They're surrounded by all these amazing things. But because they didn't listen to Willy Wonka, they couldn't see the bigger picture. They couldn't recognise the gift that was being given to them. See, the truth is, Willy Wonka not only wanted to give them the chocolate river and the chewing gum and the golden geese that lay golden eggs and all the amazing things they saw, he wanted to give them the entire factory. But they didn't recognise it. They couldn't take their eyes off what was right in front of them. They snatched at what was right in front of them because they didn't realise the fullness of the gift that was being offered to them. And this is a picture of the problem with humanity. We have snatched at the gifts but refused the gift giver. And the tragedy is that not only do we miss out on the depth and beauty of the gifts that God wants to give us, but we miss out on the greatest gift of all, which is God himself. See, our spiritual hunger, it's not a hunger for something, but a hunger for someone. And until we've been reunited to that someone, our souls will be famished. Augustine, the 4th century theologian, put it best when he said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. See, the only solution to our spiritual hunger is God himself. And the good news of Christianity, of the gospel, is that God freely gives himself to us. And in fact, this is what we see in the second half of this story. The first half, we see our great hunger. The second, God's great provision. See, following Philip's answer to Jesus' question, another one of the disciples pipes up, but his response is no better than Philip's. Look at what he says. He says, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? You see, he too fails to recognise Jesus' power and authority and ability, and so Jesus is about to show them. Jesus takes charge of the situation. He instructs the people to sit down in the grassy fields, which reminds me of Psalm 23. You make me like down in green pastures. He takes the bread and the fish from the little boy. I don't know whether he asked or not. I guess we'll find out in heaven. 
He gives thanks to God. And then we're very simply told that Jesus just distributes the bread and the fish. There's no showmanship. There's no theatrics. Jesus is not performing here. This is simple, authoritative action. And we're not told exactly how it happens or what it looked like. But that's not the point of the story. The point is what actually does happen. And what actually happens is Jesus provides abundantly for the hunger of the crowd. Jesus completely and totally satisfies the hunger of the crowd. In fact, we're told that the crowd ate as much as they wanted, verse 11. They ate their fill in verse 12. And there were even 12 full baskets of leftovers. Because when God provides for us, we receive in abundance. And this is the point. Jesus not only satisfies the hunger of the crowd, Jesus totally and completely and abundantly satisfies our spiritual hunger because Jesus alone gives us eternal life with God. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Do you believe that? This story is in the Bible to remind us that what we're looking for will be only found in Jesus. won't find it in our marriages, in our jobs, in our kids, in our hobbies, in our relationships. Not that they're bad things, they're good things, they're gifts from God, but they're not God. They will not fill the deepest hunger of your soul. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the one who satisfies our spiritual hunger. Now, what does this mean for us practically? Let me give us two quick things as we close. Firstly, it means that you must feast on Jesus daily. See, in the same way that we need to eat every day to live physically, we need to feast on Jesus daily to come alive and to flourish spiritually. It's not enough to just believe in Jesus intellectually. To just come to church once a fortnight or once a month as the extent of your relationship with Jesus. It's not enough for Jesus just to be an optional, occasional extra in your busy life. Jesus must be your strength and your nourishment for everyday living. And I know that some of us in here this morning would say, I'm spiritually famished. I'm spiritually hungry. We must feast on Jesus. Think about the most content, satisfied people you know in your life. I'm guessing it's not the richest, it's not the most successful. I'm guessing it's the people who spend most time with Jesus, who know Jesus, have pushed this truth about Jesus deep into their hearts. You must feast on Jesus daily. Secondly, it means that to receive eternal life with God, you must receive Jesus by faith. Verse 27, Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. We receive eternal life with God by receiving Jesus, by trusting in Jesus, by believing in Jesus. So let me just ask you, have you come to Jesus? Have you believed in Jesus? In Jesus we receive everything we could ever need and everything we could ever want. He's the bread of life. He offers us restored relationship with God and the deepest satisfaction for our deepest need.
What are you waiting for? God freely invites you to come and to receive and to eat of the bread of life. Let's come to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us true bread from heaven in your Son and our Lord Jesus. We receive him by faith and we know that you have given us everything we need as we go from this place and as we now come to the table. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.